Well, good morning. It is great to be with you, great to be in Franklin, uh, a delight to be with you on the 4th of July weekend. hope you're having a little bit of a break and respite. We're in a passage today that, frankly, is, uh, is a bit of a challenge. It's hard for some of us, depending on our background and our, our view of life and war and justice. And I want to back into this with uh, having you look at a couple of passages these won't necessarily be on screen, but I want you, first of all, to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And in Romans, what we're going to see is a section. Let's begin this way. Uh, most of us in this room uh, have an opinion on war. Is there a time to go to war? Is there never a time to go to war? If we made it very simplistic, it would be pacifism versus just war. A just war doctrine or a just war theology. Actually, the theologians had a great deal to do with the establishment of a just war principle. And there are those who are pacifists, that we should never kill anybody, we should never arm, we should never kill an innocent, we should never commit genocide, we should never go into a, a country and invade a country and take power and warfare into a country to kill people. And these two simplistically articulated ends of the spectrum will never align. But what is interesting is how it changes when war comes to your shore. Because when war comes to your shore, your view, if you're a pacifist, is, well, somebody better do something about this. Now, some of us, I won't do a show of hands, but some of us had this study, uh, December 7, 1941, in some detail, when you were in high school or college or grad school. Uh, some of you might have uh, been alive during that time. In December 7, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese, uh, to paraphrase Churchill, the sleeping giant woke up. America got involved in what we call World War II. Had not America gotten involved in World War II, we would not be here, literally. It'd be a different empire, a different world. Whether you think it's right or wrong, we can debate endlessly, just giving you a little history. More recently, 9-11 which has already dropped off the teaching schedule. Schools aren't teaching about 9-11 anymore. In fact, more liberal schools than ever are teaching that it was America's fault. It was brought on by its own behavior, that the export of Western ideology is what caused terrorism to come and kill almost 3,000 people. But if you lived in Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, in Pennsylvania, uh, if you lived in these areas, uh, the Twin Towers in New York City, you have a very different perspective on things. If you had family, loved ones, friends that were involved with it, you have a very different perspective. And so America responded and said, well, we have to do something about this. If you're a pacifist, are you okay with them continuing to bomb and destroy and use box cutters and IEDs and fertilizer and blow up all sorts of innocent people in America? As a pacifist, would you allow that to happen? No, a pacifist, well, somebody needs to stop them. And so that's where the just war inclination gets in. You've got to do something to stop. So now we have TSA. Don't we love TSA lines? Don't we love to stand in line and be treated like idiots? I mean, you know, and, and have to go through the zigzag and you pay pre-TSA. Doesn't help. Pay ghosts. Still doesn't help. And so you're in, it's never been, it'll never be different. We're in a brave new world post 9-11, and TSA and Homeland Defense are just examples of how it's changed. So whether you're a just war proponent or a pacifist, it really doesn't matter. When something bad happens, we want somebody to do something about it, to stop. When we read the Old Testament, and sometimes we take this stuff out of context, 
uh, we'll hear people talk about, well, the Crusades, rightly or wrongly. Well, Israel committed genocide. They're no different than a caliphate. And if this language is a little bit above, that's okay. Stay with me for a moment. Because as we look at Esther, you're going to see why I'm bringing this up. Now, if you're, if you're at Romans chapter 12, let me read a section here. Let me get over there. Romans chapter 12. Paul is instructing, think about this, this is the most doctrinaire book of the Bible, arguably, maybe Ecclesiastes. And Paul's given all the justification by faith argument, and now he gets very pragmatic in the last part of the book, and he's explaining to them how you deal with different uh, one another issues. Let me just summarize it that way. If you start at verse 17, Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil to evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That is underlined, highlighted, and circled in my Bible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now this is individual. Paul's saying, as an individual, you and I don't have the right to take revenge. We have to leave that to God. But drop down to chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Time out. We're fallen people in a fallen context. How can the establishment of government be a God-ordained thing? Fallen people in a fallen context. They're still broken. They're still sinners. It's still an imperfect system. Paul is saying there's a governing authority over you that God allows. Let's keep looking at chapter 13. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed it will receive condemnation upon themselves. Simply put, if you're driving, at, uh, it used to be 10 and 2. Now it's, what, 4 and 7? And you have your seatbelt on, and you're driving the speed limit, and you're obeying, and you're pulled over, it's, nothing's probably going to happen. But if you're DUI, you don't have your belt on, you're driving erratically, you're speeding, you're going to get pulled over, there are going to be natural consequences. And you're going to have to pay for those consequences, literally. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear if for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister. That word means to serve. It's the same word used throughout New Testament, or servant, or even a relationship to deacon, of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. So Paul's saying individually we have responsibility. On the one hand, it's not our right to take revenge or vengeance. On the other hand, if we obey the law and live properly, we're to be protected by a government. That doesn't mean governments are always perfect or without uh, corruption. But we live in a fallen context as fallen people, right? So there's going to be pros and cons of this system. But what he is saying is that there, the, sword, the government bears a sword. So Paul talks about the personal aspect, but also a public aspect. How do we live in a government with rules and regulations? Now, I want you to find your way to Exodus 34 for, and hold your place there. Exodus 34, if you would be so kind. Exodus 34. In the book of Esther, we have a story of God's providence 
and he's using people. He's using Esther and he's using Mordecai. Arguably, they may or may not be the most pious, God-fearing, righteous Jews in the context, but God's using them. God, as we know, is absent from the book. He's not, he's not mentioned in the book, so we use the tagline, veiled providence. We don't get to see him, but we see a faithfulness on the part of Mordecai, even more so, one might suggest, than even Esther. In chapter 9, we're going to have two sections. We're going to have a section of vindication and celebration. Today we're going to look at the vindication. Next weekend, the celebration, which is called Purim or Purim. So we're going to talk about the vindication where Israel uh, goes to war, in a sense. And how they do this and why they do this is important to understand. Uh, are the Jews no different than a caliphate? Did the Jews commit genocide? Are the Jews guilty of all the things that you might hear them maligned of historically? And before we answer all that, I want to take you to Exodus 34 to get a big picture on how God instructed the Jew. Now, remember, these are God's chosen people. God chose Abraham, Abram, to be the father of the nation of Israel, the, the Jew, Jewish people group. And out of them would be a blessing to the world. It was a command. It was a covenant. You will be a blessing to the world because Messiah is going to come through you. You're a chosen people and a chosen nation, and I'm going to give you a chosen land, the promised land. You must obey me. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't obey me, I'll bring the curses upon the Egypt upon you. So we know this probably too well. But look, look at chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 11, where he's re reminding them of the covenant he gave them. Be sure to observe all that I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite. The, word, the letter I-T-E, the suffix, is, means a people group. The Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Rather, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall not make for yourself no molten image. So, why am I reading this? Okay, promise, they're God's chosen people. And he's promised them a chosen land, a promised land. Promised land is the euphemism we use for everything today. A promised land was the land across the Jordan that would be fertile for their flocks and ample for their, for their farming, and they would be protected by the ocean and by natural boundaries and borders. And that was God's chosen land for his chosen people. It was to be their inheritance. So God chose Abram. He chose a select people group. And he said, when you go in there, you're going to have to deal with the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites. Why? Is that genocide? Keep in mind, God's chosen people for a chosen nation, for a chosen piece of land to bless the world because we're to be holy to the Lord. So the Jews not going and committing genocide, number one. Keep some factors in mind. These people hated the Jews. Secondly, they hated the Jews' God. 
We talk about it in literature as a polemic. It wasn't just, you know, in, in America or in Rome. You know, as long, you can have a religious system. You just don't kill each other. You can believe whatever you want. Freedom of religion, not in the Middle East. Wasn't true for the groups outside of Judaism. They hated one another's gods. What was the whole story of Exodus? It's Pharaoh God or is Yahweh Elohim God? And all the plagues were a reminder that uh, each one of the plagues was a, was a polemic. So the frogs, the gnats, the darkness, those were all Egyptian gods. Ray was the sun god. You have a god called the sun god? I'll make it black, pitch black. I'll show you who's god. Is Ray the god, Ra, or is uh, Yahweh Elohim? You, you worship a frog, I'll give you so many frogs, they'll be rancid and dying and decaying. It was a polemic. You think you're God? I'm God. You think Pharaoh's God? You think the firstborn son of Pharaoh is a God? I'll kill him. Because you can't kill a God. Oh, yeah, you can if he's not God. What was the parody going on? You try to kill my son, Israel's my son, I'll kill your son. So it was a war of the true God against the idols of Egypt. The story didn't change. So by this time, when we're coming into the land, Amorite, Perizzite, Hittite, all these different people groups, if you don't kill them, they hate you. They hate your God. More importantly than the war theory here is you're going to worship their gods. And that was the key issue. If you intermarry with them, idolatry and immorality will occur. And that was Saul's undoing. That was Israel's undoing. So high picture. God chose a people group to bless the world. He gave them a promised piece of land, which was an inheritance if they obeyed him, which they sort of did and then did not. And then we end up with the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and we know somewhat of the rest of the story. Why am I giving you all this background? Because when you read Esther chapter 9, and you might have friends say, see, God kills people. God's a God of genocide. He's no different than a caliphate. He's no different than the Crusades. And on and on they'll make these comparisons. And so we need to get a little bit of a framework for what we're about to read. All right, all that to say, very long introduction. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the 12th month, that is the month of Ader, on the 13th day, which when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews, or literally helped them, because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then we have the list of Haman's sons down to verse 10. The ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadath, the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Let's stop right there. So what we're seeing here is the tables turned. 
if you, if you want to get, if you're a note taker in, the, in, the, in your Bible, uh, the, the table's being turned. The irony of the story flips all the time. We're going to see a bunch of it in our text today. Now, God has intervened in this veiled providence, our tagline way that we can't see, and the tables have turned. So Haman, we begin with a view of Haman. Haman built uh, an impaling gallows to kill Mordecai on and destroy all the Jews. And the tables were turned. In fact, the, the Haman's hanged on his own gallows, impaled on his own gallows, and Mordecai becomes the, the second most powerful man in the kingdom of Persia and all the empire. So all the people now that were aligned under Haman who were agreed to kill the Jew, what are you going to do? This is politics, not 101. The administration hasn't just changed. There's been a complete upheaval where the majority of those people were willing to kill the Jew, and now that Jew they wanted to kill is in authority over them. So the irony is rich in the text and the way the table is turned. Two times we've read in the passage that, that Jews gain mastery over them, the idea that they exercise authority over this people group now. Thomasina writes, We would expect that in most cities Jews were a minority and could easily have been overwhelmed by the population. Most people did not attack them because the fear of the Jews power and influence. The language here shows a parallel to the conquest narratives. What he means by that is when you go back in the Old Testament, when God, I mean, God could take a small complement of Jews into a land and the dread of the Jews fell on the people, even though they vastly outnumbered the Jews because of the reputation, the miracles they had heard, the stories that traveled around. These guys are serious and their God is a big God. Don't, don't forget in antiquity, the idea of a God going before you in an army was not a a silly notion like it is today. I mean, we'd be stupid to say God goes before us in a war, right? In our political climate today. But the ancients looked at it that way. Back to Egypt. Egyptian gods or Yahweh Elohim. And that was the way they viewed things in antiquity. Those who sought their harm, uh, there was a desire to ha- commit genocide on the part of Haman to kill Mordecai and all his people. And so now, is it the same? Are the Jews going to commit genocide on uh, all the Persians who wanted to kill them? Uh, Brenneman writes, now the grand visor, referring to Mordecai, he's the grand visor. The rulers want to please him. It's amazing how rapidly political winds can change. If you're watching with any interest at all, and arguably it's very hard to be interested, uh, between what's happening with our presidential election right now, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, but if you think about early when we had all these different nominees running in a certain party, and now we're down to one maybe, uh, you know, they hated each other's guts, and now they're aligning. See, political winds change. Because when a person comes into power, you have to make a decision. Do I align with that power, or I'm going to be marginalized and out if I don't? And it becomes a conundrum. And that's why politics is such a crazy, fascinating, wonderful, horrible puzzle. Well, in antiquity, these people were going to kill the Jew. Now the Jew's in control. What are you going to do if you're a governor, a satrap, a nobleman in the Persian Empire who was willing to kill all the Jew, and all of a sudden the Jews are over you? you got a handful of options, don't you? You can align with them. You can conspire to attack and kill and still fight the Jew. Or you can kind of play dumb. I, I, I really, you know, I was a governor, but I really didn't want to have any part of that. Nothing's changed. 
people respond the same way today they do in antiquity. When the power table turns, you align with the power table, you fight the power table, or you kind of go into the background. Well, I didn't want to. Nothing's changed. Look at our polls today. Those are basically the ideas. You, you, fight what, you fight them, you align with them, or you kind of go to the background and play like I don't really know. Thomasina writes again, The narrator makes a deliberate allusion to Exodus 11. He draws a parallel between Moses and Mordecai, a parallel between uh, Passover and Purim. What is he saying? Moses delivers Israel out of Egyptian slavery and <clears throat> slavery to sin, consecrates them to worship God, and the result is Passover. Mordecai is delivering the Jew in Persia under Persian control, and he's going to celebrate it with Purim. So there's some pretty neat parallels when you see God using Moses and Passover becomes established, God using Mordecai and Purim becomes established. Well, they're going to go out and kill and destroy. The passage that causes the angst is where we read uh, that the Jew could do whatever they pleased. It just sounds like, boy, that just sounds like genocide right there. Uh, in Daniel chapter 11, the kings of the north will do what they please to their enemies. In Nehemiah 9.24, Israel entered the land and did what they pleased, what they desired. If the author intends to make a parallel and make this a holy war, we've got a problem. Baldwin offers, did what they pleased means they were, had a free hand without the prospect of retaliation. They had a free hand without the prospect of retaliation. It's more neutral. Um, again, there's lots of different ways to look at this. Let me make some suggestions if you have trouble with it. Some of you want to be trouble with it all. The Jews could do what they want. Others would say, that just sounds wrong. Uh, number one, it was necessary, it was defensible, it was justified. It was necessary, it was defensible, it was justified. These people hated the Jew. If they were willing to kill the Jew, the edict is about to come into for, in, in, in implementation because even though uh, Haman is dead, the edict is still on the books, we'd say. It's still law. So if Mordecai doesn't change the playground, play the law, the Jews are still under the threat, and there are enough people that are still aligned with Haman that would go execute Jews. So unless the tables are turned. So, so number one, it's necessary. Number two, it's defensible. If you don't go after them, they will kill you, and that would lend to then justified. It's justifiable. What we also learn from the text is the extent of the attack. Look at verse 5 for just a second. The, enemy the Jews struck all their enemies. This is not genocide. They're killing those who would have killed them. Uh, verse 5, those who hated them. Back to the Old Testament, back, back to Exodus. You're going to deal with people groups that hate you and hate your God. So you're going to have to deal with them or they will deal with you. Uh, notice also they're men. There's no account in the text that they were to exterminate women and children. And um, all this said, this is a high point of the story, is that the Jews survive under Haman's plot. That's the big picture of the story, that the Jews survive and they are not exterminated as Haman had anticipated. The killing of Haman's uh, sons, of course, would, would eliminate the future retaliation. Uh, you and your father's house will perish if you don't, would be the acronym, would be, would be the idiom. Um, you know, when Haman being hung on a gallows, impaled on a gallows, is nothing new. In fact, it came all the way into the first century. 
And if you were to go under Roman uh, citizenship, Roman ruled areas, uh, Jerusalem being the most poignant example, uh, the crucifixions did not occur on a hill far away, as our songs told us. The crucifixions occurred at ground level. In fact, uh, when you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you to go, uh, we will take you to site A or B, A being the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, B being what's called Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb. And uh, your head will tell you the sepulcher, your heart will tell you Gordon's Calvary. It's a lot more romantic. The sepulcher makes more sense, but there's a lot of reasons not to like it. So when we sh we'll take you to a model that's twice the size, three times the size of this room. And it's a 30-second scale model of the city when, when uh, Herod built the, built the walls around the Herodian walls. Solomon's temple complex and David's are very small. And so Herod builds this massive city. And that's when Christ would have been there. So we take you and show you if he'd come out of a certain gate and gone right, it'd have been sepulcher. Gone left, it'd have been Golgotha or Gordon's Calvary. And we explain, we don't know. It doesn't really matter, but we take you to both sites. And what you find is when you go to those sites, if, if people are coming in and out of the city and they see a bunch of people crucified as they're coming into the city, they go, what, what, this is a warning. You know, it's like, like in the Old West, leave your guns at the gate because if you come in here with a gun, this is what's going to happen to you. It was a very visual, visceral warning. If you commit a capital crime in this city under Roman control, we're going to put you on a stake and kill you. So people will think twice. That was the whole point of a public crucifixion. So it wasn't a hill far away with the sunset in the backdrop and music playing. This was a brutal, grotesque way to put on parade people that had committed a capital offense, guilty of sedition, guilty of a crime. We call it a felony, and they were to be executed by Roman authority. Happened in the Old Testament, happens to our Savior. It's nothing new. It continued all the way through the first century. Well, the spoils of war, as we continue to read chapter 9, are mentioned three times. Verse um, 10, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 15, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Why three times? Doesn't want the hearer, the listener to miss this in the storyline. They, they, they could not take this plunder or they did not take this plunder. Why is this important for the narrator to, to include? Because if you're committing genocide, you take everything. You take their livestock, their gold, their possessions, anything of value. If you're in there for retaliation, if you're in there for revenge, you take everything as a reward for killing your enemy. And so I believe God in his sovereignty and his veiled providence wants this recorded here for us to see. They didn't go in there vindictively, even though I'm using the word vindication. It wasn't vindictiveness. It wasn't revenge, getting vengeance. It was if we don't kill these people, they will kill us. If we don't stop this uh, edict, it will be our undoing. And so three times we're told they did not take the spoils. The, the major theme of this may be rest. In fact, one commentator writes, rest is envisaged, envisaged since the time of Deuteronomy. It was the ideal state, the ultimate dream of the diaspora Judaism, to be able to live in peace without confrontation. So to secure peace, the Jews had to not only control their enemies, but to obey God. And of course, they're in Persia, under Persian provinces, but that's not where we are today. In verses 16 to 19, we get a glimpse of what's going to happen next. 
Um, this is a two-stage day. If you've ever been to a Purim festival, maybe a Jewish friend of yours has invited you. Maybe, you have, maybe you're from a Jewish family. And some celebrate it two days, some one. It's because they first of all dealt with the, the enemy within the citadel, and then Esther talks to the king, and he allows them to go further into the provinces because there's still enemies all around. So it's a two-staged, uh, two-day event. And then verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month, Ader. On the 14th day, they rested, there's a word, and they made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, so it's another day, and then the 15th day, they made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. So again, some Jews will practice two days of, of Purim or Purim, some just one. That's the reason why. And then Purim is instituted, which we'll look at next week. How do you justify war? How do you look at pacifism versus uh, a just war doctrine? And what do we do with this language? I'll make a couple of observations. Um, from the beginning of time, uh, war has entered. War is the worst of all possible outcomes, uh, endeavors. It's not a good thing to go to war. So the problem with a just war doctrine, if we were and brandish it, is we have the right to go do this and we rush to do it, that's as wrong as egregious. That becomes revenge and vengeance. Um, so should we have gone into Vietnam? Should we have gone into Korea? Should we have entered World War II? Those are questions that you can study. I hope you still study those, especially young people who go to high school and college. They don't study these things much anymore. Uh, but I hope you do get some exposure to that because you're in a room right now where we're opening a book right now that nobody's given us half of opening this book. And as you heard Eric talk about in Russia now, they can't talk about proselytization except in their church services, which are state, most of them. And if you get a special permit, and where is that going to lead? I think in my lifetime, it will not surprise me if we can, this, is, this becomes hate speech. I will not be surprised that this becomes hate speech. Think of where our country has come from the so-called founding fathers to today. Here we are July 4th tomorrow, rich irony. Uh, here we've come to a place now where the one group you can vilify are evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing Christians. You take any attack language toward Islam, toward the Quran, you do anything that insults Islam, and God help you. But you could burn this on the street today in downtown Franklin, you could, along with the flag, and nobody would say a word. How far we've come. I'm not saying we wrap the Bible in a flag. I'm not saying we say a pledge of allegiance to the, to, the, to the flag over the Bible. I'm simply making an observation. You and I stand at a place in time, historically, 239 years, where the freedom of religion is being redefined and reframed to freedom for every religion except this one. Who'd have thunk we'd have seen this day? Now, you might be a pacifist. Oh, Michael, you're, you're a, you, you, if you know me any and all, you know, I tend to be a just war, a little bit hawkish. You should know that by now. You can pray for me and forgive me. But that's where I am because that's where I live for so many years. Um, pacifism is appealing until 9-11 occurs. When 9-11 occurred, I wanted the government to stop more perpetrators from flying planes into innocent uh, in buildings killing innocent people who were just going to work one day 
or at the Pentagon or in Pennsylvania or wherever else they would have. Who knows how many will never know that we're on flight that day. I still remember the Paul living in D.C. I still remember the Paul when they shut down all the airports. Do you remember it? It was like, it was like one of these dystonic, dystopian, uh, apocalyptic movies. There was no air traffic. It was just weird. And living in D.C., we were the last two airports in the country to start allowing flights in and out again. And that's when the government went in and all buildings over about four or five stories around the what's known as the, eight, the 17 acres were putting in special weaponry. So if anything flew over the Capitol, they could knock it out of the sky, which they didn't have before. We, we drove around in Virginia, D.C., and there were Hummers with netting on them. And these poor Marines, the Army guys in the heat out there for weeks at every little knoll on every little highway, we saw our military trying to protect the next attack. I was glad they were there. If you're a true pacifist, you're going to open the door, let them come into your home. I'm not saying it's simple. I am asking the question, is it justified? Is it defensible? Is it the right thing to do? Two quotes I want to leave you with, one from Joyce Baldwin. The Old Testament usage, and she's talking about this idea of vindication, of revenge, of going after the enemy. The Old Testament usage makes one thing very clear. And that is, personal grievances were not to become the motivation for violent acts of revenge. Romans chapter 12 and 13. Just because a horrible thing happens doesn't let you and me become a vigilante in our language. And I think she's right on. Old Testament usage, the way we read the Old Testament. Uh, Samson arguably was a one-man, he was a terminator. He was an Arnold Schwarzenegger times ten. He was a one-man Philistine killing machine, but he wasn't doing it for the good of Israel. He was doing it for revenge. And that's when we see the period of judges go to the dark side. And lastly, and this one I think, I, I love the quote, maybe you will or maybe you won't. It's by Samuel Adams, not the beer you drink, Samuel Adams. This is March 20, 1797. Samuel Adams writes, and I love this, that wars may cease in all the earth. I don't want to go to war. Even if I have just war leanings, war is the last, 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 last. I never want to go to war. I never want to see our sons and daughters into harm's way. I hate war. War is horrible. That wars may cease in all the earth and that the confusions that are and have been among the nations may be overruled by promoting and speedily bringing on that holy and happy period. You know, people don't write like this anymore. People just don't write like this anymore. These men knew how to write. That holy and happy period when the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established and that all people everywhere willingly bow to the scepter of him is the Prince of Peace. And of course we have the illusion in Esther about the scepter being extended to Esther. There's one scepter to which we bow. There's one scepter to which we worship. And that is the Lord Savior Jesus Christ. I hope you celebrate your fourth with, with all the fun and enjoyment of uh, barbecue and and you know, what other carcinogenic things that we all enjoy. I hope you have a great, great time enjoying those freedoms. Um, but our ultimate freedom is in here. As much as I love our country, it's not here. Our ultimate freedom is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of men's souls, 
the only one who redeems, the one who died in your place on your behalf instead of you and me, he's the only king. He's the only Lord. He's the only one who will rule righteously. Everything else is corrupt. Even our great country, it's still corrupt. Don't be surprised. So how do we live as, as Augustine talked about? Two cities, city of God, city of man. We're dual citizenship. We answer to a higher allegiance. And that's why I want to smile at the future, not to live in fear. Because my hope is not in the White House. My hope is in the house, the house of God, the Prince of Peace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these uh, words that are hard for, sometimes for us to, to understand and comprehend. But they're true. You've given them to us. We must read a little. We must study a little to understand what it means sometimes in these hard passages. Don't let the world teach us theology. Don't let our friends and acquaintances tell us what the Scripture doesn't say or doesn't mean. And give us the courage to speak clearly and kindly about why we believe what we believe. Help us to be men and women who love our country, who are faithful to do good, to obey the law of the land. Help us to be men and women who, first and foremost, love and serve our King and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for protection of our country. For our men and women in uniform, we thank you for those that have served, that make it us free to open the Bible and read it and study it publicly. I pray for believers around the world, that they would know your strength, your confidence, that your word will be available to them, whether they live in fears, in homes, in shadows, in alleys, to proclaim Christ, that they'd be courageous in their faith, and you protect them. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you well. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great fourth and a great weekend.